transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looks so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. 
Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called to twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child who he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop, because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it'd be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. As I say, it's a long, long chapter. <laughs> Hopefully you hung in there <laughs> with it. And I couldn't decide which bit of it to do, so we're going to do all of it. <laughs> so hang in there again <laughs> for this. Okay. Who is this man, Jesus, who the disciples have left all to follow? What do they understand about him? Sometimes they seem to have got it, and other times they seem so far off. Oops, now I'm going to knock my mic off. <laughs> Wait a minute, just going to have a fiddle. People say they wish they'd been alive when Jesus was on earth, so they could have walked with him, listened to him, been with him in the flesh. Surely that would be easier. Well, actually, I'm not sure it would. Would we have been any quicker off the mark than those disciples? Would we have understood straight off the great mystery of God's plan to save us? 
Would we have had the faith to believe that all things were possible? Or would we also have got that stinging rebuke that we heard in the chapter, O unbelieving generation, faithless, unfaithful people? But I think the verse that struck me most was, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. In the chapter, Jesus took Peter, James and John up the mountain for an out-of-this-world experience, alone with Jesus and then him suddenly transfigured before them. So gloriously transformed, even his clothes caught the glow. And with a dazzling look, whiter than anything could bleach, that's not an advert for a modern washing powder, Elijah and Moses also appear before them and start chatting with Jesus. Mark stresses the before them, it comes up two or three times. It's for the disciples' benefit that this is happening. But they are pretty frightened. Moses and Elijah are long dead, surely. Is this a vision? No, it's real. Are they awake? Yes, they're awake. (laughs) Is it the end of time? It must have been really strange for them. And Peter gabbles, let's go some shelters, one for each of you, because he's so frightened. I know that feeling sometimes, sometimes so nervous that what comes out is not what you wanted to say at all. The shelters, well the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles involved building shelters to remember that God had been with the Israelites as they crossed the desert when they were set free from Egypt. It had become a great festival lasting a whole week and it also encompassed celebrating the harvest as we have today. As well as that, there was an anticipation of the time in the future where God wouldn't just be in a tent with them temporarily but we'd be with his people forever in the new heaven and the new earth and the new city of Jerusalem with a permanent presence. And maybe Peter's wanting to make that happen now. And in a way, who can blame him? I think often when we have wonderful experiences, we do want to hang on to them and not let them go and come back to earth for a while. I wonder with the advantage of hindsight, a couple of thousand years of investigations by the scholars and meditations and debates, Do we have any more idea what the transfiguration really meant? Is it a vision of Jesus as he's going to be after the resurrection so the disciples are prepared when they get to the empty tomb? Is it the time that verse 1 means when it says some will not die before the kingdom of God comes in power? Is it because the Father and Jesus know the disciples need something to cling on to on this roller coaster ride that they're on? Or should I call it a mountains and valleys ride? That's something Steve Spencer said to me earlier in the week. Maybe they need something to help them make it through. Or is it to show them that Jesus, God's only Son, is always glorious from before the world began? until he returns to his father's side even though the glory is a bit hidden while he's on earth 
since Jesus is already perfect, could he have chosen at that moment of the transfiguration to go back to heaven and avoid the cross? Peter's just been tempting him to do that in the previous chapter. He confesses he's the anointed one, the Messiah, but then just three verses later, he says that he doesn't think he should go and die when Jesus explains that he needs to. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And he tells the disciples and the crowd at that time that if anyone wants to come after him, they've got to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow. Luke tells us Elijah, Moses and Jesus are discussing Jesus' forthcoming death, confirming it's necessary. It is God's plan to fulfil all that's been said about the Messiah in the Old Testament law and the prophets who are here represented by Elijah and Moses. It is necessary. Jesus knows that, however hard the road becomes. Later in Gethsemane, he'll fight to do his father's will, even though his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, and there's sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground as he tries to steal his will to do what he knows the father is asking him to. But for now, a cloud appears and envelops them. A cloud like the one that led Israel through the wilderness or filled the tabernacles or filled the temple with God's glory. A cloud that represents the presence of the Almighty God. And that voice of God speaks. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. There was a similar voice at Jesus' baptism as he came out of the water and the heaven was torn open and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And the voice again said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Actually, that time the voice spoke to Jesus. This time the voice speaks to Peter, James and John, saying it's God's Son. This is a prophet like Moses, one from among the people, and they need to listen to him. They need to listen, not just to that voice that brought creation into being as he spoke, not just to that voice as he does wonderful miracles and proclaims wonderful parables, but also, as he says, it's necessary for me to go to the cross. Suddenly the glorious moment is over and Elijah and Moses disappear. It's not the end of time yet, after the cross. And now they're alone with Jesus again. But the transfiguration no doubt did what it was intended to do. It helped Jesus to steer his resolve and it helped the disciples to understand what was going to happen ahead. Later on, when they're allowed to speak about it, which Jesus tells them not to do till after he's risen from the dead, Peter writes in his letters, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Yes, they need to listen 
to Jesus. And he continually teaches them by what he does and what he says. The next question is, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, he's come. And they've done to him everything they wished. The disciples know he means John the Baptist. When Herodias' daughter dances and pleases Herod, Herod rashly promises her anything she wants and she asks for John the Baptist's head. All because John told Herod his marriage to Herodias was unlawful because she was his brother's wife. When Matthew hears... When in Matthew 14, Jesus hears about that beheading, he goes off to a solitary place. I wonder how he feels. Their paths are linked, Jesus's and John's. John is the cousin who is the forerunner and the herald of Christ, who also suffered unjustly. And Jesus must as well. So we come down from the mountain with the glory and we enter the valley. Just as Moses came down from Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments to find his people had been unfaithful, Jesus comes down to the disciples arguing with the teachers of the law over a healing that the disciples can't perform. I love this line. When the surrounding crowd see Jesus, they're overwhelmed with wonder and they run to greet him. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be so nice today as well, Lord. We'd like to see the crowds overwhelmed with wonder and running to greet you. As it is, the poor father continues to describe the situation with his son there, possessed by a spirit and robbed of speech and so often tormented by it. This might be epilepsy caused by a spirit, we can't know, but we know that it causes this boy considerable distress. Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The disciples were asked to, but could not drive it out. This is when Jesus does that stinging rebuke. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long do I have to stay with you and put up with you? And he tells them to bring the boy to him. And the boy gets thrown into a fit on sight of Jesus. Perhaps the spirit knows who Jesus is. Or perhaps he's trying to prove he does have power over this boy and you can't get me. But he's wrong if he thinks that. Jesus is not perturbed at all by this spirit starting this boy wobbling around on the floor like my hearing thing and he carries on a conversation with the dad how long has he been like this I feel and hear Jesus' compassion Jesus isn't a miracle doing machine his first priority is people loving them, hearing them understanding them sharing their needs and hardships and pain and drawing them on and helping them grow if they'll listen to him the poor dad says the boy's been like it from childhood and the spirit's often thrown him in the fire or the water to kill him 
imagine that being your child that you have to watch over that could be drastically endangered at any point and it's bad enough when they're little I know this for people who have children with handicaps and things when they're little you expect to be watching over them but as they get older and become adult they expect to be independent this child clearly can have no independence even though he's grown because he must be protected at all times to keep him safe and the boy's father pleads if you can do anything take pity on us and help us can Jesus do anything? I wonder if we're any less unbelieving than Peter's generation. If you can, Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. This is one of Jesus' sentences I struggle with. Does it truly mean what it says? Everything, all things. Then I am with the boy's father. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I love you, Lord. I've loved you many, many years. I've grown in knowledge and faith and understanding of you. And yet still everything is possible for him who believes. I'm not sure that's yet my deepest experience. And I sense that failure to believe is blameworthy and paralyzing at times. But Jesus commands that spirit out. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The spirit listens to him. The spirit listens to him and obeys. It has no choice and gets out of that child. And the boy is left looking like a corpse. But of course he's not dead. And even if it was, it wouldn't matter to Jesus. He just takes him by the hand, lifts him to his feet and he stands up. Yes, Rose. Everything is possible for one who believes. (laughs) Keep reading, keep reading, keep soaking that in. Mountains can be moved by faith the size of a mustard seed. That's one of my verses I like. Because I think, well, maybe I could manage faith the size of a mustard seed, Lord, if you gave it me. (laughs) And then I could move a mountain in you. We had a large chestnut tree outside our house until this week. It was getting so big that it's beginning to go right across the bungalow, so we had to have it removed. But it's fascinating seeing that large a tree removed, branch by branch, roped safely so it doesn't drop in on anything, with all the men with their saws and their equipment, and then they put it through the chipper, and that huge tree becomes just a pile of sawdust. It's amazing what can be removed with the right help and equipment. And we've got the Spirit of God living in us and working through us. But we need to be listening to hear what he's saying. So more teaching follows, a private conversation to discuss the disciples' failure. It's good that we don't get our failures discussed in public. Jesus just does it privately with the disciples. Why couldn't we drive it out, they ask him. And Jesus says this sort can only come out with prayer. I have to find myself asking the question, weren't they praying then? Did they just try and do it anyway? But we're guilty of that too, aren't we, at times? We try and do things, but we're not really listening. We're not really hearing what God's saying to us. There are various examples of healings in the Bible where people are told to go and do something they don't particularly think 
is a good thing to do like the Naaman when he's told to go and bathe in the Jordan and he says what the Jordan I've got rivers back home if we're proud and we don't listen when he tells us a certain way of our healing then we won't be healed so we need to be listening and do it in his way and not our way Then we get a bit more of the roller coaster, another death prediction. The Son of Man's going to be betrayed into the hands of men and be killed and rise again. One commentary describes these predictions like the tolling of a bell. There's three in this portion of Mark's Gospel. Jesus gently perseveres until we do listen and we do understand. Meanwhile, those disciples, a bit like us, they're still focused on earthly things. Who's the greatest? If anyone wants to be first, he must be very last, servant of all. I think the one who is very last and then very first is actually Jesus himself. Because he was willing to give up everything and go to the cross and be seen as a complete failure in that painful and shameful death. Because he knew that was the right road. Am I willing to be a nobody if that's what God chooses? If that's what brings him most glory. I know there's some great stories in some of the books about people who go and just live in homes with lepers. or And it seems like the most self-effacing thing in the world to do. But that's what they feel God's called them to do. Then there are a couple of stories about a child. Because he brings a child the humility of being like a child and then he talks a bit about welcoming children and others that maybe we think are insignificant again who are we who are we to judge the way God does things he can use who he chooses he can use a four-year-old if he chooses to he can use the person we think has got no intelligence he can use anyone he likes to use he can use the people from another church who we think their doctrines are a bit funny or their worship's a bit lacking or their if he wants to use them he can use them we need to be humble and listening and trust him even a cup of water given in his name will get a reward the disciples judge this other person who actually manages to drive out demons and say hmm what about him Lord we told him to stop And Jesus says, don't stop people who are doing my work. And then Jesus also tells us with the children that we must not lead them astray. That leading children astray or young people in the faith is like needing the Roman punishment of putting a millstone round your neck and chucking you into the sea. It's that serious. We need to help those that are weak in the faith, that are new to the faith, and we need to do nothing that might stop them from believing. In general, it's better to restrict ourselves than to do wrong. When I was younger, I always believed I did have a gift for getting close to people quickly. 
but that gift was not tempered with wisdom at that stage and it could get me into hot water it could get me into situations where I would get physically involved or where people would become wrongfully dependent on me or I would become wrongfully dependent on them better then to avoid the situations where those situations might arise than to carry on like that and that's the kind of thing I think he means by this if your hand causes you to stumble cut it off or your foot causes you to stumble cut it off restrict yourself rather than put yourself in a position that could lead you into evil or into doing wrong better to live a life that's slightly more controlled and self-disciplined in order to do what is right in his eyes I'd say the same like being an alcoholic if you know that having two drinks is going to make you have 52 drinks better not to have the two drinks better to have a bit of a restriction on your life and I suspect that's what this passage means this next bit of it that we need to use wisdom if we know we're vulnerable in certain areas and prone to doing wrong And then there's the lovely line about suffering that makes our lives like salt. Suffering acts as a purifying agent in our lives. It changes us. I said to somebody quite recently who said that they thought that their life had kind of been wasted. I said, no, I can see it's not wasted. I can see what God's done in you through what you've been through I can see how it's formed your character how it's transformed you and that's one of the most important works that God does in our life is that character forming work deep inside us so finally we're told to have salt in ourselves and be agents of peace and hope and reconciliation so how slow are we to believe We're not alive in the time that Jesus was on earth. We're alive now in this generation. And we have all the help of the church and the teachings and the miracles of the ages. We have all the knowledge of the power of the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. We have him sat at the right hand of the Father interceding us for us. We have the accounts of Pentecost. We have all the stories in Acts of the amazing things that are done through those early disciples. We have so much that can tell us who Jesus is and what he can do through us, through his Holy Spirit. So we long that we won't be hearing Jesus say, Oh you, unbelieving generation, how long must I put up with you? Rather, wouldn't it be great to hear him saying, Generation of faith. What a joy it is to live in you and work through you. I delight in you. I thank you for listening to my voice. I'm pleased that you know that I am the Son of God who is loved by his Father. And yes, who went to the cross so that you and others might have life in all its fullness. Let us be that generation that really hears that that voice from heaven that said, This is God's Son whom I love. And let's listen to him.